0: All right, we're here at Sunset Sound with owner Paul Camerata, senior engineer Jeff Neal, and producer, author, engineer, Whatever. many other titles, <laughs> Brian Keha. Yep. How are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. Doing well. Excellent. Uh, is there any other attributes that we could describe your work in life and music? And- I feel a
1: little overworked right now, so that sounds like enough work for the next year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on some books in uh, music. Uh, we're going to refresh our old recording the beatles book that i put out in 2006 we had it out for 10 years and we're going to rebuild it to be bigger and better eventually so that's a good project great and the basis of that book
0: was the tracking at abbey road and how they did everything yeah it
1: was it was for people like us who were studio people uh musicians and engineers producers that was the part that wasn't really talked about they talked about their wives and the maharishis and their Hair and their dogs, and so forth. And there was never a book on microphones and about compressors and about, you know, flanging and drum sounds. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's what we want to know. You know, how'd they do that stuff? What kind of mixing boards and and how did they work? And so it took us well over a decade to put all that together, but it came out good.
0: Amazing. Uh, we're here in Studio Two, where 95% of the uh, first five Van Halen albums were done. Tell us, uh, you were invited into the Warner Brothers vault to kind of. Listen to a bunch of unreleased audio, and you were going to try to form a box set. I'm not really sure what.
1: It's uh, not been widely discussed, but well I do work my main job, I would say, when I'm home, is to work for Warner Brothers. They have this big warehouse up in the valley, which is like an Indiana Jones-sized place. And there's Hendrix tapes and the Commodores and, and Madonna and Green Day, and everything's in their big warehouse from way, way back. And among those are the Van Halen tapes. And the job I basically have for them as an independent contractor is just as an engineer. And in this case, we had producer Bill Inglot who's worked with them for decades. Um, They go into the vault and say, you know, what is in there that we don't know about? Are there unreleased recordings? Are there demos? Are there live shows? And they'll pick a group like Fleetwood Mac. We've done a bunch of Fleetwood Mac reissues with extra tracks, different versions of songs. And so at one point they said, hey, we want to go look at Van Halen. And I was like... Yeah. Great. (laughs) This is ground zero for me. I mean, literally when that first record came out, someone played it for me over the phone and I couldn't believe what I was hearing over a telephone. You're kidding me. Wow. So I was a fan since day one of that coming out and have studied it in crazy depth. And I know almost everything but their blood types at this Mm -hmm. point. I'm one of those gear people. I play guitar. I know about speakers and tubes and... There's a lot going on there to study, and there are whole websites and forums dedicated to people arguing about the setups and (laughs) the pedals and things like that. You've probably seen it. Even, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. studio people want to know. However, you know, the magic is in who they were, what they did. And for me, we were just talking earlier about songs. I think that you can play great guitar all day long, but you'll never buy a house if you don't have a song. And so songwriting is what they did better than most people realize. Those are great pop rock songs that everyone can sing and then happens to have a great guitar part and great drumming and cool singing, all this stuff going on. But I love their songs. They're just great writers. So anyways, the Warner Brothers project was the hopes was to do as we've done for Fleetwood Mac and all these other groups. Let's find what's in the vault. And starting from the earliest tapes, which are demos made here with Don Landy Engineering, Ted Templeman, who had discovered them. Right. They were trying to get them a record deal. They'd already played around with Gene Simmons in New York. Most Mm -hmm. people had not even heard of them beyond that. And then they brought him in here and spent a long session cutting well over 20 songs live, pretty much. Dave, that was in here. Yeah. April
2: 77? Is that it? It's 1977.
1: And Dave's in a vocal booth. They're playing live. And it seemed like they would do a full take of each song, roll the next one one time, roll the next one one time. Just give us your repertoire of everything you do. Yeah. And the funny part is many of those songs, like Bring on the Girls, uh, becomes Beautiful Girls. They did a song called House of Pain, which ends up half a decade later on 1984. They've already written most of it. And Mean oh. Streets is a song called Voodoo Queen. They're demoing back oh. in 77. Oh, wow. Okay. So a lot of their catalog was pre-written before they even went on the road for the first album tour. And that's what we were finding was these multi-track recordings And the mixes of those had been missing. No one knew what the mixes sounded like, although there are bootlegs and you can find a bad cassette copy of a cassette copy of it floating out there. But they asked us to go through and we made proper mixes of it and the reference point was the first album. So we tried to match the drum sounds, the guitar sounds, the vocal blends to the first record, which I love. So we made it sound as close to that, mixed all the pieces. Uh, We went through each album and there are not a lot of outtakes I think they've downplayed it over the years because there are, you know, an entire session tape of Eddie doing the part intro to Little Guitars. There's a bunch of him uh, working out things like Cathedral, 13 takes. There's a bunch of those things. Not that they're all that great. He's trying to do a best take, but to hear them working on things is cool. Sadly, and this is true for a lot of the old days, no one thought about outtakes at that time. You probably remember when you do an album, you'd roll five takes of a song. Number four is The Keeper. You would do some overdubs. You cut the rest of the tape away and put that on a master reel. And the best take of each song with all the overdubs is on that reel. They literally threw away the rest of the Van Halen tape. song, take ones and take fours and so forth.
2: Yeah, end up on the floor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think the only thing that exists that I can recall <laughs> is Little Dreamer. There is an alternate take of it, of that song. Uh... Whereas we do have those demos of things, and there are, even on a given track, uh, Hot for Teacher. There's different lyrics all the way through it. Dave's original vocal had different words. Oh, wow, that's cool. And that is a strange one, because Eddie plays bass on that one. I've heard some arguments, and Eddie claiming you know that he played bass on so many things mm-hmm. could not find evidence of it, but on Hot for Teacher, he plays bass. And on the intro, which is that great guitar part, He actually doubled it on the bass, but probably they couldn't quite play it live, so they didn't keep it on the record, but they did keep Ed's bass track for Hot For Teacher on the actual record. Wow. And if you've heard A Shy Boy, which is David Lee Roth's record just after, Mm -hmm. they did the exact kind of idea, Dave took that idea, to do the guitar and bass tapping and doubling each other in octaves, which is what Eddie had tried to do on the record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you find any um, unreleased songs? Um, there are mostly on these demos, and there's a couple instrumental bits which sound more like a song without vocals, yeah. but you and I and everybody would pay to hear them just play anything. I mean, I swear, the world is ready for a disc of just Eddie's guitar tracks, just John oh, Bottoms' yeah. drums, just James Jamerson's bass drums. Al- alternate er- eruption. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> awesome. the eruption, yeah, exists on tape. It's they pushed record, they played it, um, and it went down. It wasn't any fixing to do, there wasn't any splicing or anything like that. So, I wish there were alternates, but I think they might have even done a one taker on that. And of course, Eddie has complained that he hears a mistake yeah, in it
3: in the tapping part. <sighs>
1: Good luck, I mean the <laughs> perfectionism is good, but I mean anybody else would be happy to do that once in life, so absolutely mm-hmm. it's amazing
0: would one of uh, would eruption have been done in one then
1: you know, I can't recall if the track sheet said that, and in fact, I haven't been with those tapes in fifteen years, so I wasn't memorizing, but a chunk of the album was done in studio one uh-huh. and some in number two as well too. They did bounce I wouldn't say back and forth, but they might have just block booked some sessions and then moved to the other room, yeah. Um, The consoles were similar, Demedio consoles? Uh, They were, API-based, you know, consoles. One was,
2: yeah, sort of a Demedio console. The other one was... And you can explain to Frank,
1: Demedio is, he was a designer who could use components from API. Correct. And then design his own circuitry and his own routing and things like that.
2: Yeah, they were loosely based on API consoles, but with his own flair, you know. And I think they were a little more minimal, and uh, that's what we had in here at one time, all three rooms. Yeah. So they're very similar. We still have the Studio Three console, which is a con- a, a
1: flat-out D'Addario console. That's the you know Prince room. So yeah. And they're considered quite valuable and, and just a notch above because there are certainly many great API boards out there, but the D'Addarios are known for being here, especially.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The Studio One mm-hmm. board just sold. Uh,
3: oh yeah. The T
2: Bone oh. Burnett owned it, and mm-hmm. um, it, it just sold. It sold in the first 20 minutes and it was on auction didn't the board from here go to 5150 for a while no one of the The board from here Mm. went to skip sailor Uh skip sailor bought it from me and then i think i think the bank took it back or something years later and then he got pieced out
3: Mm. and there's
2: a guy in texas that has the frame but he has none of the modules somebody uh (laughs) one of my clients bought a couple of the mike Prees that were kind of Uh, hodgepodge together from that console on eBay. Ah. So it got all
1: pieced out. It's completely, it's gone. I mean, there's something to say about It doesn't really matter what you use and it could have played it he in fact did play different guitars he had an Ibanez destroyer Mm -hmm. which looks like it's a copy of a Gibson Explorer and that's on a lot of the tracks
3: that's the one he took the chunk out of it is yeah
1: Yeah. although there's pictures of him just before when it doesn't have a chunk and so Mm -hmm. forth there's a lot of times when uh, you know that was a meatier guitar sound it was a little bit heavier and it's on quite a few of the tracks I think Um, People are obsessed with small details, and it's nice to hunt them down, and I looked into them too, but you can make that same record with a different board. It wouldn't be exactly the same, and that's those little details that people chase down uh, from talking to people, and no one is 100% sure, but it had two sets of speaker cabinets. One of them had JBL speakers with they had these little silver domes. Mm-hmm. No guitar player uses those now. Some people call them the Eye of Satan. But they do make your guitar fizzy and bright, and so what I found with going through the tracks on the first album most albums for them, in fact they did two mics and it said 57, so very easy, generic guitar mic. And they had 1176s for compressors on the guitar. Oh, I didn't you know, uh, we had a little setup. bit more zing on the top, yeah. too. We have the setup sheets ah. for Studio One and Studio Two for the you can the figure it out perfect, yeah. and uh. I think that that's pretty straightforward. Although the two cabinets make two different sounds, almost like uh, when you're you know splitting a speaker between woofer and, and bass. Excuse me, woofer and tweeter. One track, like track thirteen, will be bright and fizzier. It has that edge and that zing that his guitar has that most people cannot get. And the other side is the Celestian. It's this mm-hmm. meaty, chunky, woofy, martial tone. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have that weird zing that is unique to those records and that's part of the thing i think it's just one track is the bottom and the meat one track is the bright zing on top of it that makes it kind of silvery sounding Hmm. and then dave's in a vocal booth um one of the things interesting in talking to ted and i don't know if it's been talked about much was that dave was a fine performer and so forth but not a world famous singer and he really does have an incredible voice by the time of the records He's shrieking those really high notes with the whistle notes above. He's got a great whiskey rough tone to it. But at the time, you know, they didn't think he was the leader of the group yet. It was just this guitar guy. But Ted said that on his own, Dave Roth went and took vocal lessons before the first album. They did the demos here in 77. Then they had months off while they're doing the deals and planning what songs to do. And Dave went and put himself through vocal lessons. I believe it was Seth Riggs, who is the famous Jewish cantor here in LA who teaches vocal work taught dave how to sing how to hold notes how to hit pitch mm-hmm. and wow. that's where that singing comes from is his natural style enhanced by some good training so it's not just like he's a kid from the streets he really did work on it which is cool that's good good to know
0: when you got all this uh, access to all these um tapes and listen to them and everything did you put them
1: all together then and present them to eddie at one point i think or? there's four cds of usable releasable material i mean there's you know a song falls apart you wouldn't put that out but they did happy trails in here for their demos how many years before they finally put it on an album yeah. and of course later years they were filling out records with cover songs they ran out of original not ran out of but the cover songs like pretty woman and dance in the streets actually sold well as singles they were smart to do covers yeah But Happy Trails was an old, you know, shtick thing they could do. And how many hard rock bands do four-part harmonies really well? They're amazing. So they throw that in on their demos and have fun with it. So there's a lot of things. Like I said, four CDs were put together. I know they made a set that went out to the various people. Uh, Rumors, I know that they handed some to Alex. I don't know that Eddie got some. And years later, one of Ed's friends called me and said, do you still have those tapes? like no they go back to the vault the minute we're done with them they're locked away forever and you know it's a security risk just letting me go out of the building so we work on them we send them back but they were doing uh the last album which was a lot of the original songs reworked yeah, that's what i'd heard is that it's a lot of their demos basically yeah. reworked and you know not completely they definitely always did that though there are things like uh mean streets which is this old song called voodoo queen i think it's based on like james bond live and let die voodoo queen kind Mm -hmm. of thing but then that was a little bit more dated and passe so they wrote this really tough cool song about the streets and they rewrote parts and sections but the end of voodoo queen is literally the ending of hot for teacher but they had they'd worked that part out so they really were just modular taking pieces of songs and here's the riff that we're going to use On Women and Children First, and it's the beginning of a different song two years before. So I think that that's what Ed was looking for was, well, we have some tapes and we have some live shows, but if you have the tapes of the original demos we did, we could get a better learn from it, figure it out. But I don't think they would really need them, but they were just asking, and we didn't have them. Brian, what do they have in the vault? They have the demos on up to... 1984? Yeah, until the 5151 st- studio was built. Wow. And everything yeah. after that yeah. is in the <laughs> place. Because 84, <laughs> we didn't do that here. Yeah.
2: 84 was done up at Eddie's house.
1: And I think Women and Children yeah. First was Amigo. Uh, there was Some a booking conflict. Yeah. Well, so, both. We did it sometime. Yeah. And so there's, again, if you listen to each record, there's also a, a sonic progression. They change from record to record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They didn't necessarily like the guitar on one side. And at one point, supposedly, Ed had been to his friend's place, and the speaker was disconnected, and he was all upset. So it became a thing to try to fix that. And he ended up with harmonizers on his guitars and mm-hmm. and even some double-tracking later on. But I think that there's a progression there. I did love the way they first approached it. If you think about, it's a great parallel to the Beatles. George Martin and, and uh, Norman Lee Smith Martin. decided to record them as a live group. Let's capture this band we saw in a club and make the Beatles record that. We might add a hand clap or we might add a tambourine to one chorus, but they're not going to do a bunch of weird Latin percussion and craziness. And Van Halen was the same thing. Let's get that sound that those guys do live. It's just like framing and lighting a a piece of art. You know, you want to just enhance it as much as possible, but keep it what it is. And that is why those records are so strong, because they were so good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you think that also you know it changed rock and roll forever and Eddie Van Halen was so inventive but also in that in that time frame it was disco and punk music so you this make was a great a point there thing. because
1: Greg Reynolds book Van Halen Rising which is really you know the recommended thing to read he really illustrates that it was kind of dinosaur rock Aerosmith was 71 74 75 and mm-hmm. Deep Purple Black Sabbath, which is the stuff that the Van Halen guys grew up on and played in cover bands. ZZ Top, it was arcing down. New Wave was coming out. Skinny Ties were coming out. Devo's first record, which I love to death, is on the same label at the same time as Van Halen's first record. Wow. And yet, they're both great. But the metal thing was not really happening in L.A. for another couple of years. Van Halen was more of an echo of the previous period. But they were so good at songwriting, so good at performing that they're going out into tour opening for Boston and people like that, uh, and Black Sabbath even at some point. And Journey? Yeah, Journey song? too. Yeah. Again, who were having more hits, but Van Halen was just this ferocious animal that could hit a stage and knock people out. Mm-hmm. So. And as Ted said, he goes, I signed that guitar player. It's kind of like finding a Jeff Beck, who Jeff Beck does not write songs to this day. He's a great guitarist, and he can do so much. But thank God those guys could write songs together. That's why they bought houses. That's why they have nice cars and stuff, too. (laughs) There's a great parallel, too, and it's discussed in the book that Greg wrote about Montrose, because that was another group that Ted Templeman signed and put out. Their first album is absolutely a classic. It has sold something like two million copies now, if not more. Sammy Hager's first known group. Yeah, and Ronnie we Montrose. We a, did Rock Candy in here. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a great drum sound. It's the same team doing the same thing. And they had great songs. But Ted said it tanked because we didn't push them into singles territory. Mm-hmm. And although that's considered like a bad thing to tell a group, like I don't hear any singles, but Ted said I learned my lesson. Uh, Montrose didn't work, even though the band was perfect and the songs were great. He didn't lean towards a catchy enough thing. So he was pushing them towards You Really Got Me, Jamie's Crying, which was a new song they wrote, to be more danceable, to be more girl-friendly. And then there's Dance the Night Away, yeah. there's Jump, there's Panama, things like that that are not so heavy. When the Van Halen brothers especially were fond of Black Sabbath and Aerosmith and that you know really cool, crunchy, hard rock that they do so well, but Templeman and especially Rothy said we're leaning towards a popier side and said, you know, let's have some songs girls can dance to. Sorry to interrupt you. Did Ted Templeman always want to have a cover
0: on some of the later stuff so it was a guaranteed hit? I kind of heard heard rumors about that.
1: um, I don't know if it was intentional, but as we're discussing, they weren't writing as much as they did in the early period. And while writing new songs now and then, they were also reusing old material. Great riff from this song, Mm -hmm. but it has dumb lyrics, so let's change the lyrics to something cool. And they did work with their own stuff, but I think the cover songs were part of that history of being an old bar band, and I tell a lot of people, if you think about the history of music, the Beatles started out as a bar band playing covers. And everybody did, and Van Halen is probably the last big group to start out playing covers. And if you do, though, you learn that uh, song by George Harrison, you learn that song by Stevie Wonder, you learn that song by so -so. You've got to learn a weird chord that you don't know what it is. And then you figure it out, and then you say, oh, I can put that into my heavy metal song. Mm -hmm. And Ed is doing some amazing chord progressions that you would not normally do, probably because they learned how to write a bridge. They learned how to transpose keys, modulate, and all these tricks you learn from doing someone else's music.
3: It's fun to hear Van Halen, their interpretation of every song, especially as
1: they progressed.
3: Really, their arrangements got amazing.
1: I think that they're also being creative. uh, You're No Good, which is on the second album. Linda Ronstadt had covered it, but it had had several covers already. It's a great song, but she was the known version, and they took it in a whole different, really dark direction. I mean, it's a mean song. It's an Mm -hmm. angry song, but she kind of sings it up and peppy, and they play it really dark. And it was already a big hit for her. She did that in here, didn't she? Ah
2: she uh she did do some work here i have to look and see if she did that song here i wonder if they she might had
1: have done that
0: at sound crossed
1: right? in here somehow i'm or curious because if it is that is literally the linda ronstadt track is my favorite recording of all time like oh. it is listen to it it's stunning how good they did that yeah she had a great team of people working on her stuff too so incredible
0: wow so where does all this stuff
1: stand now that's uh Well, as we've all been hearing in the news, uh, Alex and Wolfie are going through the vault, and everybody's seen this video that popped up recently, although it's fairly old, of Ed walking through 5150, and there's a 12-foot-high shelf full of tapes. Uh, yeah, I watched that video. And all my friends said, oh, man, you've got to go. That's their thing. That's their studio. That's their tapes. That's their job to even go through and, and filter out what they want to release, and again, they're could be cool stuff a lot of people don't remember the wildlife but ed did an album a soundtrack to a sean penn movie and you know lots of drum machines and jamming and and he did some other stuff who knows what what went on at night up there for all those years yeah so i'm also a fan that i wouldn't need it to be pop songs i don't need it to be heavy i would like to hear experimental things and i'd like to hear sound effects and noodling you know just the brothers jamming would be great to hear So whatever they decide to put together from that could be incredible. And then still, when we did our project, which I just can't remember the year, but it was about 12 or 14 years ago, Bill Glott was producing. We handed it in. At the time, Sammy was in the group. So it was bad timing to promote anything with Dave. Um, When Sammy was in, it was a big love fest, and Dave was out. And so it wasn't happening. And then when Dave got back in the group, no, we need a new album. And then we need a new live record. And it was not a time to promote the past and the old stuff. So I think down the road somewhere, it will be time. And it's the saddest thing that it is gone now because obviously it would be better if they could just do a tour, cut a new album, have fun, do whatever they wanted to do. But given that we have this great stuff in store, all the tapes of 5150 that people have seen, who knows what's on there. But I'll be willing to pay for it. Whatever they can put out that's good. <laughs> absolutely. And then ideally, hopefully, some of the stuff in the Warner's Vault is worth releasing, too. There's a lot going on there. I mean, it's not tons and tons, but there is absolutely top-quality material, not just outtakes or rehash, but great stuff that shows how good they were. So, um, Was Ted Templeman the last mm-hmm.
0: album he worked on, Diver Down? Did he contribute on any other tracks later on?
1: Um, I think that's fair to say... But it's not entirely true for example they even called him for some sequencing help. like we can't get this album to flow so he was invited in but at times they were working without him and again a parallel to the beatles during the white album george martin wasn't there for a lot of it and yet the white album came out great but scattered not as focused as a beatles record usually is but it's great and so with ted coming and going also doing other projects but at the time they would Sometimes consult with them and sometimes they were happy just to work with Don as engineer and kind of self-producing with Don Guiding them as well, so they had a great relationship all the way through That connection and I have to give 100% credit to Don Landy who is one of the most underrated engineers of all time if you hear those doobie brothers records Mm -hmm. uh, There's all kinds of great stuff. He did it sounds phenomenal Oh, I never even thought so of him many. as underrated. <laughs> <He> was, <laughs> I just meant that I, he's not seen in public very often. Yeah, he's, he's not doing those mixed-with-the-masters things. Mm-hmm. He's not a name. And so people who are modern or people who are, are coming up now and learning about things may love the records, but they may not realize he's done some of them and so many. Going back to Captain Beefheart records and wow. things like that that are phenomenal mm-hmm. sounding. Yeah, and Little really, Feet
2: records Little amazing feet. down here. Little George's solo record. He did that. Absolutely. Nicolette
1: Larson. He did so many records. They're kind of the records where you can use them to show off your speaker system. Like you put them on and crank them up. The Little Feet stuff, it sounds about as good as your sound system's ever going to sound. And I'll put that up against Pink Floyd or anything. The Little Feet stuff and some of the Doobies. When we were mixing Doobie Brothers outtakes at Capitol years ago. I put up taking it to the streets, and I was just listening to the tracks to see if there was anything usable, and I put up the bass, and it was a single channel, I think. I could not believe the sound, and I I talked to the producer, and I said, honestly, I, with all the gear I could hire and rent and buy, couldn't make that sound. All my friends with all their cool (laughs) gear couldn't make that sound. That is a combination of the right player, the old acoustic bass amp or whatever, and Don perfectly capturing this bass sound and in the record it sounds nice it wouldn't knock you down but if i put that fader up and you heard it you'd be like oh my god that's amazing
0: <laughs> was he a big influence for you when you started off in uh recording school and well
3: because i'm a huge van halen so fan, you immediately wanted uh, to find out he's always been like a an influence and kind of a sonic reference for me
1: but isn't there an interesting thing about ted and don and they worked as a great partnership for so many years they don't have a distinctive stamp that they put on every record so if i hear rock candy from there and i hear gonna take a lot of love by nicolette larson it's not like phil spector where everything sounds the same right yeah they have a flexibility which is very unique to say we don't have a sound the sound is this band just enhanced as much as they can be you know incredible do you notice a big um,
0: shift from the fifty one fifty stuff to the Sunset Sound recordings?
1: Personally, I prefer the Sunset Sound, and it's not necessarily just Sonics, because um, you can get a better kick drum. I can get a better kick drum, but it's not about that. You know, it's about the capturing of the combination of things. I love the sound of the chamber going on here. And when you hear that on the records, it's not something you necessarily would do on a record now. You'd use a tighter reverb Mm -hmm. or something darker or something, but it adds a a distinctive sound that is not going to be found somewhere else. Um, And as I said later on, Ed's doing like harmonizer guitars, and I understand that does make a fatter sound, but I want the non-smeared focus sound of just one guitar ripping out of that speaker and hearing every little detail, which also leaves room for the bass and the drums to be heard. But the bigger you get guitars, as we all know, the less you're going to hear everything else. So... Mm -hmm. Not to mention, I mean, I keep going on about Alex Van Halen to people, but if you listen to, like, uh, the second album especially, Alex is just tearing it up. And he's a ferocious, solid rock drummer. Lighting up the sky and all that. Incredibly. Um, Bottoms up and all these things. It's just so incredible, the playing on there. And the last tour I saw... He was by far the best one on stage. I was amazed by the work he did. He is so good right now at playing drums that I was amazed by how good he is. And again, you're in the band with that guy that plays guitar who gets all the credit for so many things, but Alex was there side-by-side side with him all the way through those years, You know, helping them pull in a direction that was unique to that band. Well, and cool. their
3: sense of timing together is, I mean, so much of it. Him being able to sort of bend with Eddie's sense of rhythm...
1: it's it's one of those things i call a four-headed monster you've got led (laughs) zeppelin you've got the beatles you've got pink floyd there are these groups where everybody in the group is as important as the next one and michael anthony if he was not in that group they would not be as great i mean absolutely rock solid bass fun to play on stage and that voice made van halen have that sound it's absolutely critical too so i think again they're they're all to be credited, the whole team of people. And I forgot to bring it today, but have you ever seen the first Van Halen record? It's a red vinyl, 12-inch, with a Looney Tunes label on it. It's a promo that Warner Brothers made for radio stations. And it's got You Really Got Me and I think Running With The Devil on it and maybe Jamie's Crying. But it's an EP and it has Elmer Fudd and it says Looney Tunes (laughs) and on the other side is an old Van Halen logo they used to use before the first album but it shows one thing that's special is that warners knew they had something special and they were spending crap loads of money to make it go now we think about van helen as being so great therefore they were popular which is mostly true but i don't know that people know how much money warner brothers spent on them i mean in those days it was all kinds of like do this with the DJs, take the DJs out to dinner, buy them whatever they want, take them out for a vacation, mm-hmm. send them another thing, give them free tickets to this. They were pumping the hell out of Van Halen. And a huge amount of the budget went into that because they didn't spend so long in the studio. They like were quick. Fleet, yeah, Fleetwood Mac would be here you know, in the oh, studio yeah. for six months just doing drum sounds and, and drinking and thinking and making great records. But Van Halen was in and out, and therefore without videos you're just going to be on the road and they were spending budget on promotion so Warner brothers really really pushed hard to get them up there the first video
0: was a live video right wasn't it yeah that's the the
1: stuff up filmed up north and there's just a couple i mean that's the first time i'd ever been able to see them and i'd never visually caught them before i didn't see the club shows and so forth so i think that was what there was we did go looking in the vaults you know there's this show filmed right where's the rest Now, filming can be expensive. You're running five or six cameras, and the film itself costs a lot. And they were only going to run a song or two on Midnight Special or maybe Don Kirshner at the most. So they didn't have a reason to film a whole concert. And I don't know where the film is. It's possible it's just recently surfacing. But in the vaults, there were only a reel or two of tape. Literally, why wouldn't you record the whole show? Mm -hmm. But those guys used to say up and down. They said, we don't need a live record. We are live in the studio. That's how we sound, which is fairly true. If you did a live record from the first or second or third or fourth Van Halen tour, kind of would sound like the record, but done live. So I wouldn't mind if it turned up. I just haven't found anything.
0: Um, what was I going to ask you? Um, had you ever met Eddie? No, nope, never met.
1: What was your first show you ever saw? Uh, I saw them at the US Festival. Uh, which was not the best day for them, although I loved it, and I was maybe 10 feet from the stage, and it was a 350,000-person crowd, and I was so obsessed with them, and I loved it. But it was they were not on tour. They did really a long show. I think there were like three or four guitar solos, lots of breaks, lots of partying, <laughs> and so it wasn't quite the show I would rather have seen the first or second tours with short songs that weren't medleyed together. Lots of bands do that when they get used to, like, we got to play the hit for half a minute and so forth like that. So then again, there are some things like the Seland Arena. Uh, bootleg tape just turned up, which somebody's cleaned up nicely, and you can see them in the early days playing a different kind of show. Mm-hmm. But they were always great. I mean, even with Sammy and even with Dave coming back, there are great Van Hillen shows to see from any period. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm a big fan of the drumming. I'm a big fan of any of those bass players. You know, It's a great band to go watch. And Dave, the entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's kind of uh,
0: a joke that they tracked it all in two days, and then mixed vocals for four more days with Dave. And it was the whole process on VH1 like two weeks then. Well, Tracking for six, mixing for a week.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, quick by anyone's standards. Yeah, and and obviously they could have maybe done it quicker. There's a famous joke. I love Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath said we did our first album in six hours second one took even longer <laughs> but the reality is people don't know that recording takes much more time even just to get a mix right you might run it down a several hours in those days nowadays it's at least one day for a mix for people because they're so anal about yeah. it but the great records maybe be a day a song but generally not i mean and again with the van hillen stuff the drum sound is virtually the same they might change it for a slower song or add a little bit more chamber on something but it wasn't like night and day recording. You're just doing each song up from the same basic yeah, track. The first you know, one's the
3: hard one, <clears> the <throat>
2: one. I remember they came in on a weekend in this room, and uh, the label was looking for a single. And they booked in like last minute on a Saturday and did Pretty Woman. And they recorded it, overdubbed it, and mixed it by Sunday night.
1: And I think the following week it was on the radio it was that fast yeah and again a great cover done very well in fact I prefer it to the original which is incredible yeah but they knew a great song when they heard it it has a great bridge and the, it really does fit them and their vocal style plus a big guitar riff very mm-hmm. much like beat it yeah. almost the same yeah. kind of riff in there too so there's a lot going on I do wish that my hope was that some days they'd get to their own white album where they would do an album with maybe some piano playing on it because that is a brilliant pianist Van Halen 3 is a that's little out there
3: yeah. I mean that's almost
1: that's, I, that's pretty adventurous I, think. I love the song Women and Children First it mm-hmm. is literally my favorite Van Halen song because you could play it in the 1940s you can play mm-hmm. it now you play it on a piano at Disneyland and do it on a little stage it's an incredible melody and that's still kind of a bottleneck slide swampy kind of jump and jive song and it's just great yeah. writing but yeah, there Could this be magic? Uh, yeah. That's... Could this be magic? And, and they do uh, the tribal stuff with tom toms there. So there's a little bit more experimentation. But I think with Ed and the soundtrack work, things like mm-hmm. that, Alex with the electronic drums, it would have been interesting to see what they could do. Yeah, totally. You've probably heard the story that they'd talked to Patti Smythe at one point. Oh. And she was in the band Scandal. She has an amazing first solo record. It's one of my favorite records. And she's got a great voice. And they talked to her about maybe doing something after Dave was gone, like maybe we'll get a singer, maybe we'll get someone in who's just different. That would have been actually an interesting idea to to walk away from the let's not do, let's not get another David Lee Roth guy with long hair and Mm -hmm. who can sing and be a tribute band. Let's do something new and creative. And I was hoping that would work out. You never know where it would go, but interesting idea. Tricky, you know, Mm -hmm. but it would have been interesting i think she's in recent days because ed has gone that she's been talking about that again too that we had a chat and maybe even recorded something up at the house i don't know maybe that'll be among the tapes if there was anything so. uh, i have a question going
0: back uh, before they step foot in here who we've heard various star- stories of who kind of discovered them or who was the first mm. one to bring templeman down to the starwood
1: do you have any uh, insight on that i mean Well, I'm not certain about it, but I know that Rodney Bingenheimer was their biggest promoter in town. They actually, you know, they're, strangely enough, not even that popular in L.A., I think. I mean, they had a following, but very much in the way of the punk rock days, there's bands like The Screamers that people don't talk about were hugely popular, lines around the block, and then The Germs, who were unpopular, are now legendary, and The Germs are great, but it's it's inverse of how things really were. Van Halen was absolutely number one in Pasadena, which is a few miles away from L.A. For those that don't live here, but I asked Greg when he was writing his book. I said, "Did they play San Diego? Did they drive to Santa Barbara and do any?" No, they went maybe as far as Orange County, San Bernardino once. They did. um, That's where I'm from, San Bernardino. And a friend of mine recorded them on his little cassette machine, and I had the tape at my studio. We did a transfer of it recently, and he's got you know his little. This band is cool, and they're doing covers in 76. (laughs) You might have heard it floating around. It's called Eros Bogarts was the club. Mm. And some of my friends went to the show that night. They walked in and saw this band playing. They go, God, we heard about this amazing guitar player. And they said, but the singer's just this big Jim Dandy (laughs) ripoff of Black Oak, Arkansas. And they thought it was sort of good and sort of Mm -hmm. annoying. If you can hear them, playing Stevie Wonder, ZZ Top, Aerosmith. Uh, mostly covers, and a couple little original sneak in there. But at the time, it uh, is maybe playing the Ibanez or a Les Paul because there's no tremolo bar. And that's even a thing with the tapping and stuff that came up very quickly of the first time. Is stop. that the backwards,
3: like he had to turn his cab backwards because he was too loud for the crowd? Um, it may have very days? well been.
1: I don't remember what he told me about it, my friend who taped it, but they were doing the circuit just playing bars and backyard parties and things and doing really well for that. But it's not the same as they're like there are these bands like Wolfgang that were big in town that no one talks about, but were maybe more popular among the people on the streets. But it is the combination of Ted seeing them literally going to a payphone, saying, "You got to come down here and see this band. We need to spend some money. We need to sign them up." So I have this story, (laughs) and you know,
2: it's there's there's this friend of the studios, and I've known him for decades. His name's Doug Messenger. He has oh, I know st- Doug. You know Doug. So he has a studio in North Hollywood. So he stopped by the other day, and uh, this was after Eddie's passing. And he said, You know, they never give me credit, but I was responsible <laughs> for, uh, for turning Ted and uh, Lenny Warnicker onto uh, Van Halen. And I go, What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you, what, do, you, what sure. do you mean, Doug? He goes, he goes, I saw these guys in Hollywood for months. I, I saw them at like Starwood. I saw them at these other places. Gazzari's or what was it? I think it was at Gazzari's. And, yeah. and he said, he kept calling Ted's office and talking to Joni, his secretary who I knew mm. and going, you gotta tell Ted to go see this band. It's right up his ah. alley. You gotta go. And she's like, I'll tell him, I'll tell him, you know, you know. You called her 10 times. So anyway, so it's it's a rainy Sunday night, he says. And he's down at the Starwood scene, uh, and he had, I guess, made another call to Joni or whatever. He's seen, um, Eddie comes on, and he said that uh, Ted wafts in with Lenny, and they had been out to dinner or something, and he comes in, and he sits down and watches them. And he goes over and talks to them. He says, yeah, I went over to talk to Ted, said, this is the band I've been talking to you about. And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he, he, they listened to it for like, you know one or two songs are blown away anyway so he says that Ted right then goes backstage to the dressing room with a napkin and writes a contract an option contract up and gets Eddie to sign it and that's how it all started and again an option is not
1: a full contract but just saying we have first rights of negotiating with you first rights to Mm -hmm. work with you on something and that would be where they'd lead into those demos yeah you know so don't forget, they'd already been to New York and tried to go with Gene Simmons, who was huge at the time. And Gene yeah. couldn't get them a record deal right. with Gene Simmons producing and some of the same songs that got them signed to Warner's. But again, those tapes are out there somewhere. Probably Gene's sitting on them or somebody has a good version of it, besides the crappy ones that circulate. And if there ever was a retrospective uh, history of showing how great they were, that would be a great beginning, if not there was if there might be earlier demos they did on their own, who knows. There I mean, years ago I heard a recording of Mammoth playing at a parking lot, which is Eddie singing. There was a three-piece, and Eddie was the singer in a parking lot of a supermarket opening in Pasadena. (laughs) Not good quality, but it existed and I haven't heard it since then. But the stuff is out there. Now when Gene had tried to do that, evidently the story went around and I'm I believe it to be true that Dave Roth was so similar to Jim Dandy Mangrum, who was definitely a rock star. Blonde hair, open chest, flamboyant, (laughs) loud, very distinctive guy, and very well-known, but Black Oak had never really broken either. They had one hit song, and then some great records that didn't sell well, and they toured all the time, but they never really took off into that level that buys you houses. And so when other people saw another group with a Jim Dandy in front, they decided to pass it was too Uh similar uh hard to describe maybe another mick jagger would be a good parallel if you had a band with a mick jagger acting guy in the front you'd go we've already got the stones but when i went to talk to ted we were playing him some of the stuff the outtakes at his house up north and i was mentioning the black oak thing and i've worked with black oak i produced one of their later records and jim danny's a friend of mine talked about all this that they used to see these guys, you know, coming to their show, and they would sometimes film and bring a little camera and watch really? them play. Yeah. But Jim Dandy was a huge uh, sex symbol, and all the girls loved him, and he got all the girls and so forth. But Ted said, you know, I've heard of Black Oak. I don't really know them. I don't know about Jim Dandy. I was into Little Feet, and it's a different world. He said, hang on, and we just typed in Black Oak Live, and there's some great footage out there. We put it on. He went, oh, my God, it's Roth. It's, no, it's, no, it's five years before, but it's the same boots and long hair and a big open chest and just super flamboyant front man. High kicks. So there's a, a, a <laughs> strong parallel, but Dave is so unique once you get to know him and not really that same thing, but maybe very parallel, very similar. But uh, visually, it's, that's the closest thing for sure. It's almost like, you know, a little borrowing. two peas in a pod. Yeah. yeah. Well, sure. Don't we have a
0: friend that, uh, or you have a friend that David Lee Roth stole a, a girl from him at the bar one night? <laughs> ah, that's it. <laughs> I
3: Allegedly girlfriend. happened. In fact, the last time I was in his room was
1: with Jim Dandy. We were here for some uh, celebrity, what do you call it, benefit charity recording, and oh. Jim Dandy came here and invited me over to come hang out. So he's a great wild guy, still rocking, doing great. <laughs> Paul, what was... Um
0: VH1 Van Halen 1 pops off changes the world of music it's everywhere what was kind of the atmosphere at the studio then every rock band wanted to come here then
2: well you know you mean when they first broke
0: yeah when Van they Halen? first broke
2: well we were doing so many bands and so many different genres of music um, you know Van Halen was a was a popular band and they were iconic and big but we were doing so many other bands yeah. that you know it was just kind of a blur I mean mm-hmm. it, we have van halen but we had you know so many blah 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 and so the, it, you can't single it out and say that was an amazing i mean it was amazing but that wasn't the only thing going on here yeah so
1: i wonder if <laughs>
3: oh not at all it was just van halen we have a lot of other yeah <laughs> but i mean they didn't
1: ours. they didn't start huge i mean they're mm-hmm. opening for journey and they didn't have a smash hit on the first record they had right. some songs on the radio but they're not a big hit so it wasn't like the days of mtv were saturation mm-hmm. they were struggling to be known after the first two albums third album still trying to have a hit single and you know getting songs played on the but warner's just still working them just the best bands have a long slow career like you too you don't start off with a five million right. record because then you're going to be no. And that's when labels you. used to stand behind and you know a five
2: contract you know for mm-hmm. albums and they would nurture and build it. Now it's like if you don't have a hit the first record, it's like gone. You know, they just yeah. don't put the energy behind it
0: And you have to have a following before you even go to a label. They want to see that you have five hundred thousand streams mm-hmm. before. And it was a like different world. Two million. Do you think? So Prince came in 81, right? 81. Do you dirty, remember dirty mind. Yeah. Van Halen and Prince ever being in the basketball court together or crossing no. paths? They would have I been in here at the same time. Yeah, right?
2: they they probably would have been here
0: at they
2: could have been here. Yeah, they would have been here.
0: But <laughs> Prince and 3. Them? Yeah, don't have any stories about them together. Van Halen and 2, Prince and 3. I wonder who was in 1 that day. <laughs> what's what do you hope to see coming out of everything just all of it to be released for all the fans
1: to enjoy i think that there's lost films out there some things are are surfacing soon i hope and people are going to pay attention to just what was the past is suddenly more important now and that there is a kind of a limited future without that guy there will be no more van halen there's a you know, I'll go to any tribute show they put on or if Alex wants to play with mm-hmm. Wolfie and Michael Anthony comes out and any singer comes out and does stuff with him, I'll pay to see one of them in the room doing what they do. But I can't really see, you know, they're not going to get a guy to play guitar and call it Van Halen. There's no yeah. way that's going to be it, viable. Yeah, unless
3: it's just a complete homage in there. I, It'd be so for weird. For a one-off yeah, I mean,
1: So my hope is that because there's a history that people will find more shows recorded, maybe for radio shows, films, uh, to study it more seriously and look back on it. Not just saying cool band from the time, but no, this is really important and this is really well crafted, uh, both on the production side and the songwriting side. I mean, some of the chord changes are really out there. Listen live in the teacher and you follow the, the little details in there. It's not normal. It's really cool and weird. So I think there's an influence in all the styles of music those brothers grew up with in their household, and Dave Roth listening to more soul music and liking that kind of funky, weird stuff as well as rock. They all brought it together and made a kind of weird mishmash that is so distinctively them. I mean, if you hear an outtake, it's like, that's those guys. Yeah. That's awesome. But I do hope that there is more to come, and more to come means those guys could do lectures. Those guys could tell their own stories. They could put together a documentary. There should be All of Freddie Mercury, but I'd rather see real footage rather than some guy pretending to be Eddie. I'd rather see... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to replace Hendrix and pretend to play Hendrix, so just put the real footage out there, put some recordings out there, and have people talk. So I think what you're doing is, is, along the lines of what I love, is first-hand accounts and people that have some kind of knowledge and experience in it, to me, is what I'm seeking more of at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, the
0: stories from the studio, just, you know, even on our YouTube page, there's just something Now we have a vault, a bank of things that are, you know, people can enjoy forever. Um, we have a great plug-in also uh, on IK Multimedia that, uh, you know, sampled all the rooms here and people can get that for $149 now, and that can live on forever.
1: I'm glad you guys are just keeping it up. Again, uh, history is so easily lost sometimes oh. and all it takes is two or three people to sit around and talk for a minute, share mm-hmm. some ideas. That's how I did the Beatles work. We'd often interview one person, but we got so much more fun out of it when you put two people in a room. Like Doug Messenger has great stories from their sessions. He would go to the sessions and worked on women and children first or maybe worked on Fair Warning, I think, and he's on the record. Yeah, and so (laughs) besides being a great engineer, he was there and paying attention and studying what they were doing and how they did it. You know, he's a fan as well. So there are everybody's got a little slice of the pie, something that, you know, Ted told me some stories that we'd never heard before about the vocal lessons. And that puts full credit back in Dave Roth's corner to say he worked really hard to be a professional guy Mm -hmm. to be as good as he could be for the record. Yeah, and it shows. It's good.
2: Well, we can just hope that there's going to be more material that's going to be released. That would be
1: fantastic. Do you have uh, something today, some audio or something? I brought a thing which would be kind of cool to hear. It's the room mics. During eruption. Wow. Because mm-hmm. the drums are in the room. Mm-hmm. But what I thought would be interesting, because on the part of it, they put delays on the guitar part of it, but you can actually hear the room kind of muffled sounding people with gobos and things like that. And then uh, since it's the, the, I'm not playing anything that no one's ever heard before, it's simply just two different microphones used in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get in weirdness with Warner Brothers and play unreleased stuff because I hope it will come out. But in the case of Eruption, the room mics, I think it's good, and many people have never discussed it. Why does it go quiet in the middle? Are there two takes? It's one take, but if you want to hear it, we can play it, and you can hear why it goes quiet in the middle. Yes. Uh, <laughs> great. How do we do that? Thumb drive in the control room? Yeah, Speaker in the control room. Okay, let's yeah. do that. Okay.